record. You thought we wasn't coming back? This is Brooks and Babylon, episode 45. Let's go. Our verse of the day, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is part three of our Kingdom Fitness series. Today, we're going to talk about a little bit of where my heart was or is as it relates to um, church or uh, spiritual growth, places of spiritual growth, um, whether it be your local church or the denomination you might claim to be a part of, even if you don't go to church on a pretty regular basis. Um, and that was kind of the impetus of where we started with the kingdom fitness motif. Got to give a big shout out to uh, Elder, the big brother, the man with the plan, Elder Ronnie Vanderhorst. He's the one that gave me that phrase uh, for an upcoming book. So you're listening to these podcasts. You're going to hear some things that are going to be published later on this year. So uh, keep us in prayer as we uh, continue to talk about uh, the things that matter us matter to us in this world filled with chaos. Hey guys, if you've spent any time in church or uh, been to church at, at some point in your life, we have this saying, and I remember hearing it when I was growing up, and it was basically uh, when something like this, it said, uh, the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. And you'd hear it all the time. If you went to church on Sunday, you went to church on Saturday, whatever time, over, at some point you're going to hear the pastor, evangelist, apostle, bishop, somebody was going to say that. And the metaphor of the church being a hospital is one that many church growers have, goers <laughs> have grown up with. In fact, it's one of those ideas that is pretty long lasting in church going circles. And the idea of that phrase, where it actually comes from, can be traced back uh, to one of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of Augustine. Um, but the proof is it's not really definitive, but they, they, they go with it a little bit. Um, but in contemporary times, it was been attributed to a lady by the name of Abigail Van Buren. And you would know her a little bit better if you're a little older. Her name is Dear Abby. And it was said to be a paraphrase of Mark 2.17. And Mark 2.17 says this, and it says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And moreover, and more often when we hear it from the pulpit, it's supposed to be an encouragement to the wayward sinner or the person who just showed up to church and don't feel like they're all together. It's basically to let you know that you don't give up just because you've made mistakes. It's said that the church is supposed to be the place where uh, those things in your past or those things that have been attached to your body or to your history uh, 
uh, can be erased or can be taken away. And it's not because of your attendance at church, but it's supposed to be about what God is doing in your life. It, it's said by so many different people all over the place. And if you've ever attended church or went to church or got church people in your family, you've at some point heard this phrase. But the place is where uh, I get into a little bit of, I got a little, uh, there's a, a Jewish phrase called agita. I get agita. I get a little bothered by the fact that we keep um, relying on this worn out phrase as a um, the new mission or the new vision statement at the local church. Um, but it, it magnifies the idea that we're all in need of help. And that's good. And the Bible makes this clear in Romans 6 and 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if this thing, thing, this actual thing of sin rather is real, and all of us have made this, um, all of us rather have the sickness, we all have this sin sickness and it's eating away at us like a cancer, then it stands to reason there must be somewhere that we can get help. There must be a place where I can go and get some relief from this thing. And where's the antidote? Is there a treatment that I can get? Uh, or, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, injection? So I don't have to deal with this sin thing anymore. And that's where church comes in. That's what it's supposed to come in. And the idea of the, the well-functioning church is the place where the sin sick would come in and they would leave changed. But the challenge so often for many of us in this century is that we come to church and we leave the very same way we came in. Um, it, it, it didn't do anything. Um and the hot, and, and and I almost feel like <clears throat> a part of the problem comes up with the is in the metaphor. The hospital metaphor makes it seem like we're going to be stuck in the church for God to do His work on us, and that's cool. The hospital aesthetic is one that's very attractive to a generation that saw a hospital as a place that was necessary. It made sense because the healing for everything could be found there. The smartest people worked there. The nicest people, supposedly our nurses, could be found there in the hospital. Everything about hospital was attractive to the person who may have dealt with some harsh things in their life. Previous generations saw the church as a place that can help them in their everyday life. They believed and looked forward to the going to church and seeing all of their communal needs being met. Since the smartest people were at the church, we would somehow become smarter if we went there. Or since the nicest people were there, then we would have the opportunity to find out what it means to be nicer people. And although previous generations saw value in the church, um, Everybody lived close by to the church. <clears throat> they ran into each other in the local grocery store at the post office. Everything about the communal nature of the church made sense for the hospital metaphor. But today we got a lot more people that are a little bit different. People nowadays, is they don't live as close to the houses of worship or the one that they attend. Most people, you know, commute to a church. It's the one that they like, that got the music they like or got the preacher they like. And so many of us um, are engaged in the practice of going to a church, but never getting any 
better. And I argue that many times people in this younger generation, this millennial generation, this Gen Z and whatever generation you're going to call after that, they see no value in coming to a church that basically holds them hostage for a little while, makes them feel bad about the, the decisions they've made or doesn't do anything to make them better. It's not activating anything in them but guilt. They don't want to be a part of that. And Honestly, neither do I. And I suspect you probably don't want to be about something like that, too. But just suppose we looked at church and thought about it a little bit different. Not so much about uh, as a hospital, because I think the challenge many times when you go to the hospital, that, that there has to be a day when I'm released. Right. Isn't there going to be a day when I'm released from the hospital, when I will be called healthy? And for the churchgoer that goes all the time right now, you're thinking that, yeah, you will be healthy the day Jesus Christ comes back. So until then, you sit in the hospital and lay on the table and get worked on. And for one aspect of our Christianity or our spiritual lives, that makes sense. Yes, there is a bigger person in charge of what's going on with me in the inside. And I can trust that uh, entity to make me more, make me better and get rid of the things that have hurt me in the past. But then what do I do now? If I'm trapped in the hospital with God working on me, then is there anything I can do? And I think that's where more of us are. We want to be able to be involved. Okay, yeah, Jesus, you're doing something in me, but what can I be doing in the meantime? What can I be doing while you're changing me from the inside out? What is it that I can get involved in and go out and do? And that idea then shifts looking at the church as a hospital. And I maintain, and I've been maintaining for the last couple of years, maybe we start need to start looking at church, churches, houses of worship um, as a gym. You start looking at the church as a gym, it changes everything about what takes place there. Because when we go to church, now I'm active. I'm going to do something while I'm here. I want to build my prayer muscle. I want to build my spiritual muscles. I want to uh, build my um, proclamation muscle. I want to bring my build my exhortation muscle. And then what I'm coming to church to do or be a part of uh, will never go out of style. There is no place where I would think that I'm healthy enough to no longer have to need the community of the church because everyone who goes to the gym, regardless of where you are in your physical ability or even in your weight class, there is a place for you in the gym. What church would be like if Everyone who came to church recognized there's a place for me in here. When I walk into the doors of this church, everywhere in here, there's a place for me, regardless of the size of the congregation, that you would feel like you can be welcomed because I look in there and there is someone like me. There is someone coming from my background. There is someone who struggled with what I struggle with. There is some Someone who's lifting the same level of weight that I'm lifting. There is someone running on the treadmill just like I run on the treadmill. Just suppose we started looking at our spiritual lives. Now we're going to get off of the macro church and start looking at the micro you and me. Suppose I 
would consider my own spiritual life like an exercise routine. Now, here's the thing. We all uh, have spent some time on an exercise kick. We've decided we're going to work out a little bit more. And we usually make that decision at the beginning of the year. And we start thinking about, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And at some point we fall off. Isn't that the same thing that has happened to you with your spiritual life too? And you just don't give up. You make another plan and you go back. So many people have given up on church, on worship gatherings, simply because they were hurt or they felt or they felt like they failed at one point. But my encouragement to you today, don't give up and don't stop. You can get back on the horse. You can get back uh, in the gym, if you will. There is a church doors waiting for you to walk in. And if there's not a church waiting for you to walk in, why don't you make a church right where you are? That's how they started in Acts 2. They did that mess in people's churches, or rather people's houses, and made them into churches. They made them into houses of worship. Because the hospital fails to answer the question, what's next? Honestly, we are never released from the hospital because that would mean we are no longer in need of God's grace. But what I keep coming back to and what I'm asking you to think about was, what's the most or what could be more effective in our our outgoing uh, strategies than changing our idea of what church looks like, what church ought to be, than saying, okay, you can hold on to the hospital, but why don't we start looking at church as a gym? And what does that mean? What what would that uh, work out to be? If you're thinking about that with me, then... uh, you're in the right place because we're going to hit this a little, a few more times before we stop. And then uh, we'll put it, put the book out a little bit later on. But we're, we're, we're talking about the idea moving from hospital to a gym. What do you think? Hit me up if you can. Um, we got one more part we're going to get into today. All right. ever heard of the story of Babette's Feast? It's an interesting short story that I ran across maybe a couple of years ago and it just came to my mind today and I said, hey, let me share this with the people on the podcast because I think it's a great story. And the story is really about these two sisters, uh, Martine and Philippa, that live in this small village. Their father was a pastor of a small church and now he's dead. These ladies are old. Uh, Takes place in 19th century Denmark. And while the story is being told, it flashes back like 49 years. And it's talking about these same two women who were, they begin the story as elderly women. We go back in the past and we see them as young women, um, beautiful girls that, you know, could have had their pick of dudes. But they ultimately um, shun the men for the church. They make a decision that they are not going to get involved with these men who came calling. Um, one of them, uh, Martine, um, had this dude that was like, he was a, a, a army officer. He's a Swedish cavalry officer. And Philippa uh, met this dude and his name is going to be important. So it's Akil Papin. He was like uh, this star baritone for the Paris opera. Either way, the ladies pushed this dude, these dudes away. 
35 years pass and this woman, Babette, our uh, main person, shows up at their door. And she is carrying a letter from the baritone, the guy named Papin, explaining that she's a refugee from um, bloodshed in Paris. And he's recommending her as their housekeeper. The sisters can't afford to take in Babette, but she offers to work for free. And so Babette now serves as their cook for the next 14 years. Um, And she's like, slinging this food man she's doing this thing and the food is better and this whole deal is going on while she's staying with these people and there's one thing that keeps her linked to her former life in Paris and apparently it's a lottery ticket and in Paris they renew she had a friend in Paris that apparently can renew lottery tickets so she would just hold on to the ticket and they would just renew it every year one day she wins the lottery 10,000 francs and instead of using the money to return to Paris and get back to the life that she used to have she decides to spend it preparing a delicious dinner for the sisters and their small congregation on the occasion of the founding of the their past of the founding pastor's 100th birthday so more than just a feast this meal is just an outpouring of Babette's appreciation it's literally an act of self-sacrifice but she doesn't tell anybody that she's spending her winnings. As a matter of fact, I don't even think she lets them know she got winnings. So the sisters accept the meal and they offer to pay for the creation of a real French dinner. But she says, no, nah, she's not going to need it. She's just going to arrange for her nephew to go to Paris and gather the supplies for the feast. And the ingredients are plentiful. They're sumptuous. They're exotic. Um, their arrival causes much discussion among the villagers as the various never before seen ingredients arrive and preparations commence. The sisters start worrying that the meal will become a sin of sensual luxury, if not some form of devilry. Um, and in a hasty conference, they get together and the sisters say to each other and they even get the conference together, the uh, congregation, rather the church. And they say, all right, we're going to agree to eat, but no one speak of this thing with pleasure. Nobody let this girl know that it's good. Don't say anything about it, which is like nuts. It's like, why would you tell somebody the food is good? But because they don't want to encourage um, this way of being, this fact that this woman would spend this time making this great meal for him. They don't want to encourage this sort of thing. Anyway, so... um, the dude who uh, these people, they, they have the dinner and they um, everyone is sitting around the table. And one of the people who comes to the dinner is another one of the lady's old boyfriends. This dude comes in and he's like, yo, this and he didn't go to the meeting, so he don't know. So he's there sitting there and he's eating this food and he's telling everybody about all the food and the things that they're eating. And he's comparing it to meals that he's had in all these uh, famous places. And one of the famous places, a place called Cafe Anglais in Paris. And although the other celebrants refuse to comment on the earthly pleasures of their meal, Babette's gifts breaks break down rather their distrust and their superstitions, elevating them physically and spiritually 
Old wrongs are forgotten around the table. Ancient loves are rekindled around the table and a mystical redemption of the human spirit settles over the table. I, I pause it just to say, cause I get excited. I love communion. And uh, this is basically what happens at communion. It's the fact that we, uh, the, the meal is so expensive because it took Christ's life for us to be able to enjoy the communion service. And if you've enjoyed a, a good meal, you know, it can take you to a whole nother place. Now, the sisters assume that Babette will now return to Paris, but she lets them know that she spent all her money and she's not going anywhere. And the sisters are completely busted. They're like, oh, Babette then reveals that she was formerly the head chef of the Café Anglais and tells him that the dinner for 12 cost her literally 10,000 francs. The two sisters are just they're behind beside themselves. They just crying and crying. And now they feel bad. Now you're going to be poor for the rest of your life. But then Babette says this crazy thing. She says, an artist is never poor. Philippa then says, but this is not the end, Babette. In paradise, you will be the great artist God meant you to be. And then embraces her with tears in her eyes saying, oh, how you will enchant the angels, which is precisely how the story ends. That's something I learned this week. Thanks. I so appreciate you still being around here at the end of this podcast. And what we really love for you to do is like, subscribe and comment um, on the podcast. And what we can do now or what you're welcome to do now is you can send us an email at brooksinbabylon at Gmail or visit our Facebook page, Brooks in Babylon at Facebook and uh, leave us a message there. Let us know what you like, what you dislike um, and engage with us and we can grow our community that way as people who become places of rest in a world filled with chaos. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great one.